You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Major Chris Liggett, a professor here in the Department of English and Philosophy. Chris, welcome to The Spear. Hey, happy to be here. How'd you wind up in the Army? I went to West Point. Okay, what brought you to West Point? (laughs) Uh, My parents were Air Force Academy grads, so I always grew up with that influence in my life um and a lot of people ask me why i went to west point and not the air force academy i wanted to lead soldiers on the ground period and Mm -hmm. i didn't think that uh the air force academy would give me as much of an opportunity for that when did you show up at west point uh june of 2008 okay so smack in the middle of iraq afghanistan all the war on terror exactly yep there were a lot of people coming to west point and thanking us cadets for joining the war or joining the military at a time where our nation was at war mm-hmm. and uh, we had a lot of a lot of friends who like we knew that when the firsties graduated they were going to combat mm-hmm. and we lost some of them along the way and they would make announcements about it in the mess hall and it was just like a very real part of our experience here you made it through West Point. What'd you branch? I branched infantry. Again, leading soldiers on the ground in that combat. That was what I wanted to do. That's the only reason I came to West Point. So okay. I really couldn't see myself doing anything else. All right. And what was your pipeline after graduation? Yeah, so I did the sort of typical infantry thing. I went to Fort Benning. I did infantry Bolick, which was much harder for me than I expected. All the ROTC kids sort of outpaced me because they do... Uh, like tactical training and lane preparation as their whole kind of thing as they get ready for LDAC, as it was called at the time. But I never really did patrolling at West Point. Uh, We didn't have CLDT at the time, which is like our ranger school lanes, infantry lanes scenario. I don't know. I was surprised by that. And I, Bullock, really kind of knocked me back on my heels a little bit, and I had to pay attention and focus. So then I went to ranger school after that, which was an equal kick, <laughs> kick uh, on my ego, um, but managed to make it through that. And uh, yeah, then I went on to my first unit. Where was that first unit? 101st, okay. 2nd Brigade. And what was, your, what was your initial role out of the gate down there? Well, I went to air assault school immediately because that's what you do at the 101st. And I took an infantry platoon right away. So no staff time. I took a platoon that was training for a deployment. So I 
believe we trained together for about a year before we deployed, which is kind of the perfect scenario. Mm-hmm. I think as a cadet, you want to take a platoon immediately like, <laughs> and, and deploy immediately. Um, but I was fortunate enough to walk with them through like fire team uh, exercises, through squad live fire and platoon live fire, battalion exercise at uh, Fort Polk, and then a deployment. So I had time to build my team before we left. When you were building and framing your team, what was, you know, your interaction with your platoon sergeant, your interaction with the XO, kind of how did you formulate your sense of leadership and your involvement with the soldiers? So I'm a humanities guy. I was an English major here at West Point. I've always reflected on my leadership style and sort of my takeaway has been that you don't have to be, you don't have to be a jerk to be a good leader, right? In fact, we talk a lot about building relationships and using those relationships to build a team that actually functions instead of just looks good from the outside. And um, I really used my time with my first infantry platoon to put that to the test. You know, like, it, can you succeed with this mindset? I think it worked pretty well. So my platoon sergeant, when I came in, he was just beat down. Um, he actually had told the battalion sergeant major that he was quitting his position. It was one of those situations where he had been pushed so far to the brink that he just basically gave up and quit and told the sergeant major, I'm not coming back. Like, I want to do something else. Move me out. And they didn't have a replacement for him, so they just left him in the position and pretended like he'd never said that. So he was like just zoning in this mindset for a while what was your reaction to that and you know how did you how did you work with him i mean i had always been taught to build a team right like you don't choose who your first platoon sergeant is and you got to get to know people and hear their perspective and like move forward from that so that's what i did i just spent time sort of instead of beating him up like it seemed everybody else was doing i just wanted to spend time to get to know him and see if we could work together and build up from this low point. The platoon had a bad reputation. Not that they had done anything wrong. They just were kind of not the all-stars of the company. Uh, And being at the bottom is not a bad place to build up from. So that's what I tried to do. I tried to work with him, and we tried to build up. And long story short, it worked out for us. I mean, we ended up, and I, I don't think this is because of me at all. I just think it's because of the people who were in the platoon. But we ended up doing really well. We had a lot of trust in the platoon. We cared about each other. Um, we performed well. And I was confident going into the deployment that we were a solid team capable of doing our job. Did he wind up staying your platoon sergeant or did they find him another position? He did. He stayed. And he was one of my best friends. <laughs> like, it worked out. Uh, I just think he never, he wasn't given the chance to speak his piece and I don't think he was given a lot of respect. And I don't think that was intentional. I just think he was overlooked. But once we started working together and we got to know each other, I mean, he performed not only to expectation, but like well beyond that. He mm-hmm. cared about the platoon and he cared about me and he cared about the soldiers. And I mean, what else can you ask for? Mm-hmm. The deployment. Where'd yeah. you go? And what was going on in the ground there? So I went to eastern Afghanistan in Nangarhar province for the first portion of my deployment. And we were at Jalalabad Airfield. 
and this was in 2014. So the setting SFAT roles were really prevalent. So we were doing a lot of advisory missions. Um, so that looked like a lot of troops stationed at Jalalabad Airfield, which is a FOB. FOB Fenty is what it was called. The infantry missions outside the base were patrolling uh, mostly for route clearance, to be honest. So uh, supporting logistics that were going from like one end of the country to the other. We would, infantry troops would follow a, an engineering route clearance unit. We called them CARCOs, Combined Arms Route Clearance Operation. So <laughs> the engineers would drive, clear the route of any IEDs, um, and the infantry would follow them as like a supporting unit in case they came under fire. After we cleared, the logistics package would follow, you know, shortly after. So that was one thing that was going on. Another thing was these advisory missions. So there were infantry platoons who were escorting the battalion staff, essentially, to support the Afghan battalions, which were called Kandaks, helping them basically look like Americans, right? Like set up their staff functions and teach them how to do patrolling the way that we do. And we provided security for that. When you would do these route clearance packages, was it the whole platoon or would you send squads out? Usually the whole platoon. It was a big operation. So we would be a platoon attached to an, an engineer company. And not the, the, it wasn't the entire engineering company that would go on this mission, but portions of the company would go, including the company commander oftentimes as like the ground force commander. The unit's doing route clearance packages. Mm -hmm. It was also doing advising missions. Did your platoon go out and do those? That's right. So we had three different missions that my company was supporting. We had three different platoons. We sort of took a rotation amongst the different platoon leaders on who was going to do what job. So we did route clearance for about three months. It was a nine-month deployment. We did security force for about three months, and then we did entry control point for three months. Uh, so I did. I took my platoon on the sec security force missions, um, which was a totally different vibe than the route clearance package. So the route clearance package, we would usually leave maybe like 10 o'clock at night and have like a 12-hour mission. So we didn't see normal FOB life. Uh, we were sitting in trucks for a long time, and we would sort of wake up, gear for our next mission, and go back out. It was very, very repetitive. And the security, like the security force was not. <laughs> it was, we had a lot more freedom to plan where we were going, how we were going to get there. And we were at the whims of the battalion command team on when we were going to go. The battalion command team being the Americans or the Kandaks? The Americans. So okay. our battalion commander would essentially say, hey, I want to go meet with my partners, the Kandak commander, tomorrow at three o'clock. Take us there. And it was my job to plan the route, uh, make sure that my platoon was squared away to do this mission, do some coordinations with the units that we were, the Afghan units who we were going to meet with to make sure they were expecting us, make sure we had access to the facility where we were going. Uh, once we got there, we would exit the vehicles and provide ground security. So we would essentially stand around and be bodyguards and follow around our battalion staff for however long they wanted to meet. And Side note for this is the there were uh, presidential elections going on in Afghanistan at the time, so we were preparing 
to support and to train the Afghans to support the elections. What was that like? Uh, a lot of p- political talk about who was running for president. So this was when Ashraf Ghani was elected as president in 2014, uh, which was interesting for me. I always cared about sort of the culture that was going on there. So it gave me talking points so I could talk to the other Afga- the Afghan soldiers who were on these bases that we went to. They were excited about it. It felt like we were doing something important. It felt like supporting these elections were was an important mission. And, you know, it was like the continuation of democracy in Afghanistan at the time. So even though we were standing around all day in the summer, um, we knew why they were meeting and we were generally supportive of that, right? Um, it felt like we had a, a purpose behind what we were doing. How did you convey that sense of purpose to your soldiers? I think the best way, I mean, I could stand there all day and tell them, hey, this is important for democracy and listen up, right? Uh, But I think seeing it and hearing it from the Afghans themselves was the most important part of that acceptance for them, right? They, They saw that they were putting out, setting up these voting stations. They saw that people were, like during the elections, they saw that they were like getting their fingers stained with the purple ink, they knew it was dangerous. We had intel reports all the time about potential attacks on polling sites. Um, and my soldiers saw Afghan civilians showing up to vote anyway. So I don't think I had a whole lot to do with convincing them that it was important. I think the Afghan people convinced them that it was important just by their support for it and the way that they cared about it. Did the elections happen when you were on the security division or after you'd rotated? They did. I was at a polling site with my battalion command team during the elections. So uh, I was on the security mission probably a month and a half or two months before the election started, so leading up to it, and then during the election itself. You've had time on the road, time advising the Afghans, seeing this important election. The third part of your deployment then is the ECP. That's right. That's got to be a huge transition for a line unit to come out of the mountains, to come off the roads, to now have to stand at a gate. Right. That was tough. <laughs> that was tough. <laughs> um, and I would say that that was probably my, my greatest challenge mentally with the platoon. Um, it's not a sexy mission, right? It's not an interesting mission. It's not a fun mission, or at least it's not seen that way, to be a gate guard. It's not glamorous. However, we were responsible for a lot of the base's security. This was a big FOB, um, I mean relatively big FOB, with an active airfield. And there were literally thousands of Afghans coming in and out of the gates every day. And we, we were the ones who were responsible for checking them and making sure that they were safe to enter. And this was a time where like Green on Blue was a big legitimate threat. Um, so we took that very seriously. We also had large trucks, like logistics packages, coming in from all over the country to our base that my soldiers had to scan and check as if they were like TSA agents, right, which they were not trained for initially. Um, so anyway, we had a big responsibility. And so I saw it as my role to build a positive environment for my soldiers and my platoon give them a sense of purpose and motivation about this mission, which wasn't the most glamorous of the three, 
and really like pull our team together. And I put a lot of effort into that. And I think I think we did a good job with that. How did you and your platoon sergeant keep the troops sharp? That's really tough. We did 12-hour days every day with no weekends, obviously, which if, you're, if you've been deployed before, you know that that's a thing. But uh, I think on your first deployment, it really hits you like this doesn't stop for nine months. Um, so 12-hour days, but those days, you know, we had to transport to our duty location. We had to debrief afterwards. So long, long days. I think the ways that we kept the platoon sharp and kept them motivated was we let them have fun. We let them make friends with Afghans. We let them joke around and talk with them. We let them build workout equipment out there and bring workout equipment out there to the job site. We didn't expect them to be robots for 12 hours every day uh, in body armor because they're up on the front of the fob. 12 hours on, 12 hours off. I'm assuming you're running a day shift and a night shift. Did you rotate soldiers through that or was it, you know, how did you pick those? Who was going to go when? That's right. So my platoon sergeant and I were on the day shift. The reason we took that was because it was the most dynamic, right? Like that's when the most Afghans are coming in. That's when the truck shipments are coming in. Uh, We had to make decisions and we felt like we were very hands-on and we could see what was going on and, you know, reach out and touch soldiers if we needed to, to either put them back in the right mindset or motivate them or whatever it was that we needed to do. On the night shift, we had our weapons squad leader. So he's the second senior NCO in the platoon. He traditionally, like on the ground, on a light infantry patrol, he's in charge of our most casualty producing weapons. And he needs to be trusted to be at the support by fire position away from the platoon leader and the platoon sergeant. So it seemed natural that we would put him in charge of our night shift. And we did rotate troops through him. He always stayed on the night shift, but we always, we did rotate some of our troops through the night shift rotation just to kind of break up the monotony and give them a chance to maybe have an easier job. Um, the day shift was tough. It was hot, and they were long days, and you were actively engaging, like working with Afghans. On the night shift, you we were really just manning towers. That trust you placed in that sergeant, staff sergeant, weapons squad leader, how had he earned that prior, and how did he maintain that? He was a he was a stellar performer. So he joined our platoon a little bit later in our train-up for deployment. Uh, but I remember the first thing that he said when he came in was, hey, like I'm here to enforce the standard. Like That's what I'm about, and that's the vibe I want to bring to this platoon, is I want to have fun, I want to get to know you, but... I'm not willing to let the standards slide. And, you know, that's not an uncommon thing to hear from an NCO, but it's the very first thing that he said to the platoon when he first met us. And that's the persona that he wanted to uh, put out there in the world to, to the platoon. And he did. He was a very physically fit guy. He was very confident, almost to the point of being a little bit cocky, uh, but it seemed like he knew how to walk that line. He spent a lot of time developing his weapon squad and making sure that they could perform. He seemed reliable and trustworthy and competent. 
like all the things that you wanted. He took a, we went to JRTC with him where he really earned his reputation across the platoon. I really wasn't concerned with having him out there at the ECP at night. You've given this NCO a tremendous amount of responsibility, right? He is the decision maker at the night shift unless he comes and wakes you or the platoon sergeant up. He's earned his reputation right at JRTC and in the, you know, your previous two missions. Did he maintain that trust kind of going through the rest of the time of the deployment? Right. So it, that's the main thing that I think I really want to talk about today is the fact that this guy seemed so competent and trustworthy and he did maintain that level of trust and confidence throughout the deployment uh, in my eyes as a platoon leader. But what I found out after the deployment is that he had been abusing that trust the whole time and I wasn't aware of it. I guess I'd really like to reflect on how that went unnoticed and think about ways that I could have seen that coming, or if I had seen it coming, like what would I have done to change things in the platoon? And that gets a little bit tricky because he performed. He did the job that he was supposed to do, and he did a good job of it from what I could tell as a platoon leader and from what the platoon sergeant saw. And it's just such a strange sort of conundrum that he was abusing the soldiers and abusing drugs and still functioning at such a high level through this combat deployment. You've used the word abuse twice in the last sentence. Can you delve into what that means and, you know, kind of how that word came about? Sure. So my weapons squad leader during our deployment was approaching junior enlisted and bullying them for their prescription meds. Not only was he taking their prescription medications from them, Uh, when they were prescribed legitimately, but he was coercing them to report injuries, false, fake injuries, so that they could get more medications for him. When you say prescription meds, I mean, are we talking like Adderall or are we talking... We're talking opiates. Opiates, okay. We're talking opiates that he had an addiction to and that I wasn't aware of. He even got to the point where he was threatening the soldiers in the platoon, threatening them with a loss of their position, threatening them with uh, reporting them for false, you know, with false accusations to get his drugs. And what strikes me the most is that I didn't know about it at all throughout the deployment. And what strikes me most is that we had a good relationship with the soldiers in the platoon, and they never felt like they could tell me about this or tell the platoon sergeant about this. I think maybe that's one of the difficult parts of dealing with an opiate addiction is people can operate at high levels with these addictions and you don't notice that they're high or intoxicated or anything like that. And in some ways they can fly under the radar. And I think one of the only indicators that I would have had was the things he was trying to do to get these drugs. But I think the power dynamic that was going on there was just so great that, you know, private first class wasn't willing to confront the weapon squad leader about this crazy activity. You said both you and your platoon sergeant missed the signs, you know, from the retro, from the, from the vantage point now of almost a decade. 
what were those, some of those signs that you, know, you think maybe you could have caught? Totally. Of course, I thought about this a lot over the years. And there were things that I noticed while we were in the deployment. Um, this brings up a really important dynamic. And one of them is we have to accomplish the mission. In an infantry platoon and in any army unit, the mission is mission first, people always, right? Um, that's the quote. That can be really hard to grapple with. So some of these signs were sort of a cavalier attitude, right? Which maybe not directly associated with um, a drug addiction. But I mentioned earlier that this NCO was cocky to the point where he was almost crossing the line. So a good example of this is we would be on a dismounted patrol. I remember one night we were on a dismounted patrol up in Kunar province. And I'm a young platoon leader. This was probably one of my first dismounted patrols, certainly in Kunar province, just north of Jalalabad. And he wanted to, there was some, there was some high ground off to our left, off the side of the route that we were patrolling. And he recommended to me as the weapons squad leader that we conduct a recon by fire, as he called it. So there was no enemy in our area that we were aware of. Uh, This was sort of a routine patrol. We weren't taking fire from anyone. Um, But he had a suspicious feeling about this rock outcropping, and he wanted to shoot at it, essentially. So a recon by fire is where you fire where you think the enemy is so that the enemy thinks that you see them, and in response they fire back at you, which reveals their position. Um, And this was a serious request that he had. This was a serious uh, comment that he made. And I had to take a stance with him and tell him that I didn't think it was valid. I didn't think it was necessary. And I didn't think it was the right thing to do. So that makes me still to this day question like, what were his motives? What was he interested in? Why would he recommend something like that? Um, Especially when we were around like a civilian population, we had no idea what was on the top of that ridgeline. Like, why would we shoot over there? So as I look back, that puts up a red flag. A couple other things that raise some red flags for me are the personal relationships that he had with junior enlisted in the platoon. So look, like I think we want to be friends with the soldiers that we work with in the platoon. And I think that we should be to a degree. But there is a line there. Um, and that's something that each of us has to figure out on our own and in our own leadership style. But he spent more time with the junior enlisted in his weapon squad than most NCOs that I had seen. And he didn't really spend a lot of time with other NCOs. It was sort of like he had this following of junior enlisted, um, which didn't concern me at the time. I didn't see anything irresponsible. He would spend a lot of time at the gym with them, and I would go to the gym with them and work out with them too. Um, It looked like mentorship to me. It looked like building his weapon squad, but he was taking advantage of them while he was doing that, and I wasn't aware of it. When did the curtain fall? When did you see behind what was going on? I didn't see what was going on until after our deployment was over. And this is the hard thing, right? I had a feeling that this NCO, my weapon squad leader, was cavalier. I had a feeling that he was pushing boundaries and that he was maybe teetering on the boundaries of 
abusing his trust. Um, we talked about the night shift. I had faith that he was doing his job responsibly during the night shift, but I also had a tingly feeling in the back of my mind that he was watching movies in the shack the whole time instead of going around and checking on his soldiers at the towers. Didn't really have a way of knowing that because I couldn't check up on that at midnight after I had done my 12-hour shift. So that tingly feeling that I had, I never looked into it. And I don't know if that was a conscious decision or if I never felt like I had the evidence that I needed to really dig into it. But this is where the mission comes comes into play is if we look into every suspicion that we have with every soldier and dig into everything that could potentially be a problem, uh, we're going to spend more time doing that than we are focusing on the mission that's at hand. And at the time, my weapon squad leader was performing well, and we were accomplishing our mission, and I didn't see anything that made me think that I should confront him or cause any problems with the relationships in the in the platoon but when did it all come crashing down so immediately after we got back from deployment that's the answer to that question as soon as we got back from deployment i actually switched over to a different platoon which is not an uncommon thing to do i moved over to a weapons platoon within the same battalion uh in the delta company and right away even though i wasn't in the platoon anymore my soldiers started coming to me and telling me what had been happening on deployment And they told me that not only had it happened on deployment, but it didn't stop when we got home. It actually got worse. So this NCO was back in the United States with his family. Things were not going well with his wife. He didn't have the ready access to the drugs that he was getting in Afghanistan. And I think it all started to crumble for him as soon as we got back. Um, Not only was he continuing to intimidate and bully soldiers to try to get their drugs he was now asking them for money and when they couldn't provide money for him or wouldn't provide money for him he started to ask for money from higher ranking soldiers in the platoon and across the company so it looked like he had reached a point of desperation and the soldiers weren't maybe the change in environment made them less afraid to confront him about this because they weren't going out on patrols with him every day or they weren't under his command at the ECP, and they decided to come out and make it known what he was doing. What was the company's reaction? What was your reaction? I think my initial reaction was, I should have seen this. I knew there was something weird going on with him, that tingly feeling, right? I knew, or maybe not I should have seen this, but I'm not entirely surprised right? Like this guy was cavalier. He was pushing boundaries. He was overly confident and cocky. And while I trusted him to do his mission, when my soldiers told me about this, I wasn't, it was within the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, you know, I feel like there are some folks who someone could say that and your jaw would drop and you would go, there's no way. Uh, And this, he wasn't one of those guys. I wasn't. I was surprised. I had no idea that it was going on, and I couldn't. It was hard for me to believe that it was going on, and I had no idea, which makes me feel like a failure as a leader to a degree. But it, all those stories where he had called for a recon by fire or the infinite number of other small instances that made me question his, his intentions sort of came to the forefront. And I said, ah, like, I believe you that this is happening. And 
I'm sorry that we didn't catch this on deployment. You left the company you were in. You're in a new company now. Right. I mean, did you go back to the your old company commander and say, hey, sir, we've got a problem? I did. I wasn't in the platoon anymore. That's right. Uh, and really, the way that this all came out to me was with a phone call at one o'clock in the morning with the new company commander. He wasn't the old company. It was a new company commander also. Uh, switched out right away. And he called me and said, hey, this NCO is in the hospital and he's being combative with a nurse. And I know you have a good relationship with him and I want you to come to the hospital and try and see if you can help manage this situation. So it was a, <laughs> that's when my soldiers started coming out to me and telling me about it. So it wasn't, it wasn't like my soldiers started coming to me and telling me and then I went to the company commander and brought it out. It imploded so quickly that he was in the hospital fighting his addiction and just extremely drunk and intoxicated and fighting with a nurse. And it couldn't, he couldn't hide it anymore. And that's when soldiers started coming out. What happened when you got to the hospital? It was rough. It was really hard. Um, I think we've all been to a hospital before, but I stepped into the room and this NCO was in a nightgown, right? So he's not in a uniform. He's, or he's in one of those hospital gowns. He's not in a uniform. He's so drunk that he's slurring his speech. But he's a big guy, and he's a tough guy. And he somehow is able to stay coherent, even though he can't, <laughs> even though he's slurring his speech and is clearly in a crazy state of mind. And he is being really, really rude to the nurse. Not just really, really rude. He's being aggressive with her. And I think some of that aggression, like, you know, I just step into the room and I hear them talking and I see what's going on. And the immediate need was to calm the situation because, you know, this guy did a lot of bad things on his deployment. He did a lot of bad things to a lot of bad people in the platoon, or to a lot of good people into the platoon, to the people that he was supposed to be taking care of. But I still cared about him. I had deployed with him. I had just now or recently learned about what he had done, and I was interested in helping him. And I didn't want him to get some sort of like assault and battery charge on a nurse in a hospital. I wanted him, my goal for him was to figure out his addiction and get help because that's what we're supposed to do. Get him help and rehabilitate him and somehow help him move forward with his life. That's what I wanted. And one of the most memorable parts of this experience to me was he was asking the nurse not to give him morphine and not to give him opiates. And the nurse wanted to give them to him to basically help calm his mood. Um, so I saw this exchange going back and forth between an addicted soldier who didn't want drugs and a nurse who wanted to use them on him. Um, so yeah, that was difficult. You have no legal authority in this hospital. You are there at the request of the company commander. What was the soldier's reaction when you walked into that room? I think he saw me as a friend, and I think he saw me as the only person in the room that he could trust, which is hard for me to reflect on now um, and even then because I wanted him to be able to trust me, and I wanted to trust him, but he had already abused that, right? Like that was already I, – I knew I couldn't trust him, and I knew – 
if he told me, if he tried to explain his situation to me, I couldn't trust anything that he told me about it. And if he tried to explain that he was dealing with a small addiction and it wasn't a big deal and he was going to get through this and he was a smart guy. And if he tried to explain to me why he was talking to the nurse the way he was talking to her as if she had done something wrong to him, uh, I knew that I couldn't believe him. So you're right. I didn't have any legal authority. I was really there as moral support and as a friend, um, And I was there to use our relationship as a tool to try to calm him down and bring him around to a to a place where it would be better for him. And I think a couple things happened. I think he tried to manipulate me and he tried to use me as uh, he tried to connect with me as a friend to help him in this situation. But I think he was also legitimately happy to see me and calm down and willing to talk to me in ways that he wasn't willing to talk to the company commander or the nurse. What happened with him? It did not get better. Uh, So the Army has this, at least back in 2014 when I was experiencing this, there's a system of rehab where the soldiers would get sent to a rehab facility not too far away from Fort Campbell. They would go through this for a number of days or weeks until some sort of threshold had been met, and then they would be returned to the unit. And once they were returned to the unit, then we could go through legal processes and deal with all these things. And it it didn't stop. So he continued to ask for money. He continued to try and find drugs. He continued to harass soldiers to the point where he eventually got kicked out of the Army. And I don't think his drug addiction ended there. Uh, I'm not in connection with him anymore. But some of my soldiers are or have been, and a lot of them are out of the Army now. But as I, they tell me stories, and I think his life just continued to crumble. Um, I think he spent some time in jail, and uh, that's hard for me because I feel somewhat responsible for that. I feel like I ask myself the question, did I, did I overlook warning signs that I could have caught during my deployment because I was focused on mission success and because I was focused on maintaining the status quo until we were successful in our deployment. Did this NCO push himself so far to these levels to the point where he couldn't recover from them anymore because he was worried about mission success and he needed these drugs to perform in order to make it through the deployment? Did we put the deployment and mission success ahead of the personal welfare of our junior enlisted and ahead of this NCO and his addiction to the point where as soon as we got home, it just wasn't recoverable. That's a question that I asked myself. It's a heavy story. You start with a platoon sergeant who was burned out and who through the course of a year long, you know, work up with you and then a deployment seems to have recovered. At the same time, you have a weapons squad leader who started high and ended you know, much lower than a burned-out platoon sergeant. When you analyze and look back on your time as a platoon leader, do you see it as a success? I do. Uh, I don't look back on my time as a platoon leader as if I was a failure or as if our platoon failed. I think some things that I've learned in other units that I've been in and other experiences that I've had since then uh, are that perfection isn't possible. 
right? I think we're taught to expect that and aspire for that. And we get frustrated when our SOP isn't perfect or when our soldiers don't react exactly the way that we want them to. And I think that's somewhat of a problem, right? Because if we're striving for perfection and that's our goal, we're setting ourselves up for failure. We're not ever going to realize that because humans are complicated, situations are messy, and it's just not realistic. A word that hasn't been used yet is forgiveness. Is that part of your healing process if you are going through a healing process or some of your reflections? I mean, how does, how does that word get used in your mind in this situation? I'm an open person, and I, like I've said a few times, like relationships are really important to me. So when I look at this NCO, it bothers me that I don't have closure with him, right? Like I left the platoon to a different company. He, and then of course, as all officers do, I moved into another unit and went on to special operations and I was just removed from him. And I don't know the entire story of the end of his career. And I, I don't hold it against him. Um, I tend to think of it more as if he was struggling with some demons that we couldn't help him with. And maybe that's not the right way to look at it. Um, But it does bother me that I never had the chance to hear from him again. I'm not in connection with him now, and I don't, I've tried and I can't figure out how to get a hold of him. Uh, It bothers me that the soldiers in my platoon. I don't know if they forgive me, and I haven't had that conversation with them either. I don't know if they see it as if I let this happen to them. And I think that's important, even all these years later, to circle back and find closure. And if forgiveness is at the end of that closure, then that's great. I don't think it always is possible. Um, I don't think we can always reach terms and reach a place where we truly forgive each other and are willing to move on or move forward. I don't know if that trust, right, if I ever had to work with this NCO again, I don't know if I could ever really regain that trust. But I, I do think that we can reach a place where we've set our peace, everybody's on the same page, we acknowledge what happened, and we reach some sort of closure where we can move on and look back at it as if it has an ending to the story, right? But for me, the story never really ended and it's still going. Chris, thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.